0: readings today uh, from the book of Judges. Judges 13 starting at verse 1. Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I uh, I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He is here! The man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was an angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honour you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat, and together with the grain offering, and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame, Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife. Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Meneha, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtol. So far in the reading.
1: Let's uh, let's pray. Almighty God, as we come now to uh, looking at your word, we ask that you open our hearts and minds to receive it and that you show us how we should be able to apply it to our lives and to live in a way that is pleasing and glorifies you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's sermon is entitled, A Miraculous Birth. Today we start looking at the last judge in the book of Judges. Samson is one of the Bible's most well-known characters, and he's also the most problematic of all the judges. Also, the account of Samson doesn't follow the familiar pattern we've come to expect. Samson doesn't conform to how we think a biblical hero should act. He is arrogant, duplicitous, a devious trickster and a womaniser. He was a miraculous and unasked-for gift to the people. But Israel handed him over to the Philistines so they could save themselves. In Samson, we see the flaws of God's people between the time of Joshua and the time of the kings, but we also see wonderful hints of the perfect judge and saviour to come. All of the judges, including Samson, are shadows of the one true judge and saviour, the Lord Jesus. They all point to him, but none of them are perfect. All have a flaw of some sort, and they are all sinful beings as we ourselves are. A shadow is a dark area or shape produced by a body coming between the rays of light and a surface. Our own shadow is a patch of darkness caused by our body blocking the light of the sun. You know it is sort of you, but at the same time it isn't. A shadow is something that's insubstantial or fleeting. And the word shadow has many meanings. When we say this morning that the judges are a shadow of the Lord Jesus, The meaning we're using is a weak or inferior remnant or version of something. As we look at Samson, we will see shadows of Jesus. And these shadows are seen before Samson is even born. Because like Jesus, Samson was born under supernatural circumstances with his birth heralded by the angel of the Lord. Like Jesus, Samson was set apart from before birth to serve the Lord, to do the Lord's work, to rescue the Lord's people. Samson shows us more about ourselves and our position before God than any of the other judges do. And Samson shows more of the gospel than the other judges. So Samson won't be covered in one session. But first, let's go back to Judges 1 to help us understand where and how the Israelites got to where they are, why they keep going back and what this means for us. In Judges 1, God decreed the Israelites were to exterminate all the people living in the land, which they initially did. But as the conquest went on, not all the original inhabitants were wiped out. Some were enslaved. Some lived amongst the Israelites as equals. And in one place, they chased the Israelites out of the land. These failures created problems for the Israelites. The Israelites were supposed to keep themselves separate and worship only the Lord God, If they had done as God had required, this would have been relatively easy for them. But failing to wipe out the original inhabitants increased the temptations they faced and led to the cycles of the Israelites turning away from God and worshipping idols, repenting of their sinfulness, and then turning back to God. However, with each cycle, they lose knowledge of God and how he requires them to live. Until, as we see in these chapters we start looking at today, the Israelites are living lives indistinguishable from the people around them. Their lifestyle is a blend of God's ways and the world's ways. We began to see this in coming to understand how Jephthah could have made the vow that he did and then carry it out. This blend of belief systems and cultures is causing Israel to forget God and his ways to do evil in the eyes or sight of the Lord, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This verse is quite pointed because it shows that in the eyes of the Israelites, or as far as they were concerned, what they were doing was not evil. The Israelites didn't go about thinking, I know this is evil, but I'm going to do it anyway. In their perception, their behaviour was perfectly acceptable. But, in God's eyes, the behaviour was wicked. And this teaches us two truths about sin. First, the definition of sin. The contrast between the eyes of the Lord and our own teaches that sin does not ultimately consist of violating our own conscience, personal standards, community standards, or the laws of our society. Instead, sin is violating God's will for us. This is the complete opposite to modern thinking and lifestyles, where the constant assertion is that only the individual can define what is right or wrong for them. To put it another way, my eyes, my heart's feelings, my mind's perceptions, my belief's, other way to determine right and wrong. To use the rallying cry of the hippie era, if it feels good, do it. But even if we didn't have the Bible to guide us, common sense contradicts this thinking. If evil is only determined by our own eyes, how could we tell the Nazis it was wrong to exterminate the Jews? In their eyes, the Nazis thought they were doing the world a favour. ...or even providing justice for past imagined wrongs. But in the eyes of the rest of the world, what they were doing was evil. Then there is Robin Hood. Legend or historical fact, who can be sure? Nonetheless, it's a rollicking good yarn, a great adventure story. To the ordinary people, Robin Hood was a hero. In their eyes, he was taking on the might and power of the authorities... ...to ensure justice and fairness for the people... But in the eyes of the authorities, he was a criminal. So then, in both these examples, who is right? If our eyes are insufficient for defining sin, whose are? Is evil defined by the eyes of experts? Or in the majority's eyes? The Bible's answer is the best one. Sin is defined as violating our relationship with God violating the will of God for us. What God sees as sin is sin, regardless of what we feel or believe, what the experts say, or what our culture or society agrees on. The second truth this verse teaches is this, the deception of sin. It reminds us how easily we deceive ourselves. The Israelites had psychological and cultural rationalizations and support for their sin. They were in a kind of group denial. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing. Deep down, there was a suppressed knowledge that they were out of touch with God and were rejecting his will. But at the conscious level, they had no overt guilt and lots of explanations for their lifestyles. What we must remember and what Judges has shown us again and again is that idolatry is at the heart of sin. Idols are not always bad things. They are good things that have been turned into ultimate hopes and goals. There's nothing wrong with working hard, but the line between working hard and making work an idol is a fine one. An idol is, by its very nature, deceitful. An idol tells us that working hard is wise and sensible, that it's a good thing that we're being unselfish, virtuous, responsible. But the reality is that when work becomes an idol, when it becomes the motive for existence, we put it into the God-shaped place in our hearts and then do evil in the only eyes of the universe that count. When we realise how deceptive sin and idolatry are, we need to be very careful to constantly evaluate ourselves through reflection on the Bible and through personal accountability to others. No one is unaccountable for their actions. Not you, not me, not even King Charles. Why do we need to do this? Because it's very easy for us to find ways to rationalise our sins so that they don't look bad in our eyes. The 17th century Puritan writer Thomas Brooks put it like this, Satan paints sin with virtue's colours. By rationalizing our sins in this way, we fall into the deceptive trap of sin. We fool ourselves into thinking that we're not doing anything sinful, that whatever we are doing is acceptable, and we end up driving a wedge between us and God, a wedge that tears our relationship with him apart. In our journey through Judges, we've seen the Israelites do this time and time again, and each time they do, they do it their knowledge and understanding of God and his ways becomes diminished. And as they do this, the Israelites' lifestyle becomes more like their neighbors. Instead of being separate and different to the nations around them, the Israelites become polluted by them. Their neighbors' idols become their own. And as we are told in verse 1, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Each time we've seen this happen, the Israelites end up being subjected and oppressed by the nations around them Until they cry out to the Lord to be rescued. But as we are about to see, there is something different this time. And the judge that is about to come will be unlike any we have seen so far. With each of the cycles, when the oppression became more than they could bear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for rescue. But look at the first three verses of chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. We're about to find out about a new judge. But the Israelites have not cried out for help. Instead of hearing how God raised up a judge, we are taken to a town in the territory of Dan and we're introduced to a couple who have a major problem in their lives, a personal crisis. The wife is sterile. This might seem strange to you. We've moved from talking about a national crisis to a personal problem. Cheryl Brown states that in the Hebrew narrative, Setting the personal problem against the national problem indicates they are closely connected with the solution to one involving the solution to the other. The phrase the angel of the Lord usually refers to God himself or as a reference for Christ's appearances in the Old Testament. So whenever we see the phrase the angel of the Lord appeared, we should realise something very special is about to happen. Seeing the phrase here, We should realise that God is taking steps to provide a rescuer even though the Israelites haven't cried out for one and it looks like God is going to use this couple who are unable to have children to do it. As we've seen before, God is doing something completely unexpected. The angel of the Lord, God himself, appears to a barren couple and tells them that they will have a baby. Well, not exactly. He appears to the wife and tells her that she will have a baby and that when he is grown, he will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. The wife is also given explicit instructions on what to eat and drink because, as the angel of the Lord tells her, the child will be a Nazirite, set apart to God from birth. As we see in verses 3 to 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This itself is unusual. The Nazarite vow found in Numbers 6 contained three basic stipulations. A Nazirite was not to cut or shave their hair hair, for the duration of the vow, an important point as we shall see later in Samson's life. A Nazirite was not to drink any produce from vines, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And a Nazirite was not to have any contact with any dead body, again another point we shall see later in Samson's life. The purpose of the Nazirite vow was to ask for God's special help during a crucial time. It was a sign that the person making the vow was looking to God with great intensity and focus. Keeping your hair uncut and refraining from the fruit of the vine were ways of showing that you were in training toward a goal. By refraining from touching a dead body, you are adopting the stringent rules of ceremonial cleanliness for priests who were not allowed to touch anything dead because they worked in God's house every day. It's also clear from Numbers 6 that the Nazirite vow was made voluntarily and for a defined time period. But Samson was being born into the Nazirite state involuntarily. His parents were taking the vow for him, and he was to stay a Nazirite for his whole life. His mother was not to eat, drink wine or eat unclean foods, Because the Nazarite vow started, immediately Samson was in her womb. What she ate and drank, Samson in utero would also eat and drink. What these verses show us is that God put Samson under this rule before he was born, setting Samson apart to God from and before birth. And this special birth points us forward to the most special of all births over a thousand years later. The conception and birth of Samson is a shadow of the conception and birth of Jesus. But Jesus' birth is not the only miraculous birth that Samson's birth should remind us of. God has worked in the world through a child who has often worked through the world and a child whose existence, humanly speaking, is impossible. Isaac, the son promised to Abram and through whom would come blessing to the world, born to Sarah, who was barren and of old age. Samuel, born to Hannah, who was again unable to have children. John the Baptist, born to Elizabeth, who again, like Sarah, was barren and well along in years. And Jesus, with whom the scale of miraculousness goes off the scale. Mary's pregnancy was impossible for an entirely different reason. She was a virgin. For all the other babies, God's power opened women's wombs so they could conceive naturally. But with Mary, God enabled her to conceive without a human father at all. In every case except Hannah, God used an angel to promise the pregnancy. Each birth was something the mother was humanly incapable of. In each case, God shows that the outworking of his salvation promises is something that no human can manage or is capable of. God is showing that he alone is the one who, as it says in Romans 4 verse 17, gives life to the dead and calls things are not as though they were. There are two important ways in which the births of Samson, Isaac, Samuel and John are different from the birth of Jesus. First, the births of Samson, Isaac, Samuel and John happened in the shadow of disgrace. Unlike today, in ancient times, it was a disgrace for a woman to be barren. A woman's fertility was a major part of honour and dignity. Children were viewed as a sign of prosperity and rich blessing by God. A woman who could not bear children lived under a cloud of shame and with a sense of disappointment. When God visited each of these women, promised and then gave them a child, God lifted the shame and disgrace and brought honour and joy. But the birth of Jesus brought disgrace to the mother and son. Our saviour was born in scandal and suspicion, reminding us that while the other saviours, think of Ehud, Gideon and Jephthah, gained honour and glory to do their work, Jesus lost all his honour and glory to do his. The second difference between the births of Samson and Jesus is the salvation Samson would bring would be incomplete. Verse 5 states, Samson would only begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, but he points beyond himself to the one who would complete the victory over the Philistines, King David. But David's salvation is incomplete. While he gave rest from the Israelites' enemies, he could not bring victory over the sin of his own heart, or even less, over his people's. Only the salvation won by Jesus is complete. Only Jesus finished the job he was required to do. As the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21, he will save his people from their sins. Samson points us to King David and beyond to Jesus. There's another difference we also need to consider in this passage. When the angel told Sarah that she would become pregnant, She laughed. When Elizabeth told Zechariah that he would have a son, he could not believe it. Samson's mother, though, showed complete faith in the Lord's ability to do the impossible. She believed the word came from God, just as Mary would do 1,200 years later. Then we see in verse 6, she went to her husband, telling him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. He said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Furthermore, Samson's mother obeyed the word from God. She accepted she needed to apply herself to the Nazarite behavioral code so she would have a son who was used in God's service, again, just as Mary would do 1,200 years later. Both Manoah's wife and Mary were obedient to God's plan and trusted that God would do as he had promised and planned At great cost to themselves. Adherence to the Nazirite vow for Samson's mother and shame and disgrace for Mary. This is real faith. Samson's father also shows faith. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. He asks God to grant them a return visit from the man he had sent and that this man would teach them how to raise the boy. Manoah doesn't doubt his wife. He assumes that the promise will come true. But he does ask for a return visit. Not for proof that they will have a son, but for help to know how to raise the son. And in verse 9, the Lord sends the angel back. Again, he appears to the wife, but this time she runs and gets her husband so he can make his request on how to raise the boy they will have. The angel doesn't provide any more specific information. He repeats what he has already said. But Manoah wants more rules, so he asks the angel to stay and offers to prepare him a meal. Timothy Keller identifies there may be a hint of pagan religion in this request, because feeding someone, a god or a person, meant they were obligated to you in that culture. Likewise, in verse 17, by asking the angel for his name in line with the mores of the culture, Manoah is seeking to establish a relationship with the angel, a relationship that has rules on both sides. With both requests, Manoah is trying to get the angel to tell him the rules, the ways in which he should raise his son, explaining why in verse 16 the angel declines to eat Manoah's food or to give him his name in verse 18. The angel is not in Manoah's debt, and will not give him the information he wants and thinks he needs. Why would the angel of the Lord return if he had no new information to give? In verse 8, Manoah prayed for help, and that apparently is refused. Or is it? Manoah does get the help he needed, but not in the form he was asking or the way he expected. The angel of the Lord gives Manoah a revelation of who he is. The response the angel gives when asked his name is that it is beyond human understanding. It is too wonderful for a human to grasp, and it points to his glory. Manoah wanted to know what the rules for the boy's life and work were to be. He wanted guidelines to raise the boy. He wanted to know, what are the boundaries in which I am to rear this child? The answer given to him is not what he expects. Instead, we see in verse 16, the angel suggests that Manoah should make a sacrifice to the Lord, which Manoah does. And then in verse 20, as Manoah and his wife watch, and as the flames rise heavenward, the angel of the Lord ascends in the flames, indelibly printing his greatness in their minds. In verse 22, Manoah finally grasps who the angel of the Lord is, and he knows enough of his people's history to realise that no one can see God's face and live. Because he turns to his wife and says, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife responds, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering, shown us all these things, or announced to us such things as these. Through his revelation of who he is, God provides the answer to the question of how they are to raise their son. The answer is that it is far more important that they know God and his character. All the rules in the world would not provide the direction needed to make the innumerable decisions and choices they will have to make with Samson. Only a deep understanding of who God is will give them that. We will see in future looks at Samson that Samson's own life and Manoah's attempt to manipulate the angel reveal that Manoah and his wife fell short in their child-rearing and failed to show and explain God's character to their son. Yet God's message to them is a message to us. We think we need rules, but the reality is we need to know God. God does not and will not give us a guidebook for every twist and turn our lives might take. He doesn't provide us with a ready-made answer for every doubt or decision in our lives. What he does give us is much better. He gives us himself and encourages us to come to him at all times and in all circumstances. Isn't this so much better than a guidebook or a rule book? When our children are small, we need to teach them everything and guide them, follow them every step of the way. As they grow older, we start giving them them more independence, allow them to start making their own decisions, and hope that the values, the thinking, and the wisdom we have imparted will guide their actions and decisions. To guide our children into maturity, we move from lots of external rules to internal motives and principles of wisdom. This is the lesson that Manoah was shown that day. Manoah wanted more rules and regulations, but God showed him he needed to know God and to use that knowledge and pass it on in raising Samson. Like Manoah, we would love to have more rules to guide us, but external rules don't make for a mature relationship In Romans 12, Paul says Christians do not need to conform, but rather need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We don't get lots of prescriptions, rules, or regulations, but we do, through the Holy Spirit, get God and enjoy knowing the mind of Christ. We don't need to know about God through his external standards when we can know him through his Spirit. We need to remember the lesson Manoah was taught. All this happened before Samson was even born, but his birth was not in doubt as it rested on God's promise. And so we see in verse 24, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. The sun, the star that gives us light each day, was considered a god by many Canaanites, and the name Samson literally means little son. In naming the boy Samson, we have another clue that Israel, while not rejecting the Lord outright, have combined half-hearted worship of him with worship of other deities. It's concerning that a future judge of Israel, a shadow of the one true rescuer, is named after a pagan god, effectively being called son of the sun. Nevertheless, God is at work for and through his flawed people. As Samson grows up, he is blessed by God, as we see in verse 24. And in verse 25, God's spirit begins to work in him. Samson is a boy miraculously conceived, chosen by God, set apart to serve him, blessed by him, and shaped by his spirit. Samson has every spiritual advantage. He is the last judge in the book of Judges, the last great hope for Israel. We wait to see how he will rescue and rule God's people in obedience to God, but we will be disappointed. Samson's flaws, just as much as his birth does, will remind us that God's people need another, even greater deliverer. One who was without flaws. One who could live a sinless, perfect life. One who could bear the sins of his people and take their punishment. One who was both human and God. Praise be to God that in Jesus Christ we have that deliverer. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word has shown us today that you provide salvation for your people even when they do not ask for it. Even though they were sinning against you through idolatry and disobedience, you provided salvation. We know that you provided salvation because of your great love for your people and your creation. Your salvation promises something that no human can manage or is capable of. Your salvation frees us from the sin in our lives. In showing us this, you remind us that sin is not a violation of our own or society's standards, but is a violation of the standards and guidelines that you set and of your will for us. You remind us that what you see as sin is sin, regardless of what our society and culture tell us. Your word also shows us that with you, nothing is impossible. You can open barren wombs and give life where no life previously existed. You give life to the dead and call things that are not as though they were. When we see things like this in your word, it shows us that there is much about you that we do not know or understand. We pray that you give us the same faith that Manoah and his wife had, a faith to know that you will do what you say and promise, a faith that enables us to trust that you will guide us and help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our understanding of your character enabling us to live our lives in the way you intended. A faith that knows that even when things are not going the way we planned, they are going the way you planned, and that your way is so much better than any way we could ever have imagined. Help us to live out this life of faith in the same way that the great Saviour, our Lord Jesus, did, and in whose name we pray. Amen.